1: Ha <laughs> The biggest show in the country remains the biggest show in the country. This is
0: The Stephen Nolan Show! Stephen Nolan is Northern Ireland's most powerful journalist. Indeed, some people think he's the most powerful person in Northern Ireland. The BBC presenter's name terrifies politicians and senior civil servants.
1: Take your seats in Westminster and play your part in stopping it oh, if that's oh, what you believe. Let's
0: not be silly, yes. Yeah, seven let's seven not be silly. <laughs> let's not be silly. Let's not be Stephen. silly yeah. taking seven, your seats seven, in a democratic
1: seven, institution and, uh, and, and trying to stop you something will, you don't believe you will,
0: in. He's exposed some of the biggest scandals of recent years and is one of the BBC's highest earners.
1: Why would I ask? I was finance minister at the time. Why would you ask? Yeah. You're the first minister of our country. This Why, is a scheme which is called. Yes, a scheme Congress which Jonathan kept rights, open for a and period you still of weeks. Haven't asked what the delay no, because about. Jonathan hasn't spoken to me for a long period of time. I'm talking you're asking asking on behalf of the public. Jennifer. Do you not want
0: to know? He's massively controversial. His style can be brash, and he talks freely about his own life in a most on BBC way.
1: <laughs> Why is my mother laughing at this? Why are you laughing at this woman? Oh listen, listen. L- L- my L- L- my, my L- mom is L- a shangle road woman. She come down and knock you out, love. <laughs> knock you out.
0: But who is the man behind the big personality? Do we really know him? What
1: does he think? What does he regret? I'm just c i am just I was constantly devastated by the rejection. I got very down. I felt I was worth nothing. I was constantly crying.
0: In this episode of The Bell Tell, for the first of two in-depth interviews, I've gone to BBC Broadcasting House where I'm joined by a man who has just come off air. Take me back to when you first walked into this building. It was for TV, wasn't it? Because you did.
1: Yeah, so I've been I've been trying to get into BBC Northern Ireland for, for many, many years. Um, um couldn't get in, Sam. Uh, I'd written them so many letters, and so what I did was, I was in BCR, uh, which is Belfast Community Radio, uh, then became City Beat, and like, I, was, I, was, I was young and had so much energy, and didn't have enough experience to know what the rights or wrongs were, so I just went for it, and what I decided to do was, I knew that there were these prestigious awards across the water called the Sonys. So I tried to win them every year and embarrass BBC Northern Ireland into giving me a job. I won one gold the first year, I won a couple of golds the next year. Year three I won three golds, I think it was. And every year I would get up on the stage and I would um, thank BBC Northern Ireland for coming and commiserate with them for getting silver. And that's how I kind of I uh, just kept on nearly winding this place up until they came and, and, and offered me a gig.
0: Where, where did that passion come from though? Because when you're at school, did you want to be a footballer, a pilot or did you always want to do this?
1: So my my schooling experiences um, have been pretty profound for me. So in primary school, I went to Spring Hill Primary School, top of the martin Road and I loved every single second of it. Um, and I was a kind of, I was getting 99 out of 100 in all my tests in primary school and then when it came to the day of the 11 plus i messed it up uh and i got an, an m grade <coughs> there used to be a m and g and my parents then forced me to go against to uh and ronnie lamont who was on the board of governors got me in through vouching for the type of character i was and the, the pupil i was um and I've, I've always, there's been this wee voice in the back of my mind that I keep on wrecking things I keep on nearly getting there and then not quite achieving um, what I set out to do and that's always been with me, so in other words but you know, I was a really really, really good goalkeeper when I was really young, like really good and played for this team called Bloomfield Youth and they used to, they were just they were just brilliant, we're talking 10, 11 years of age but I got myself so fat that any skill I had as a goalkeeper, uh, I, 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 I I couldn't move. So I wrecked that. After I'd won the trophies for being player of the year and all of that, I got myself so fat that I wrecked that. Then in primary school, um, uh, I was this grade A student and then messed up the test on the day. Um, so I, that that wee voice is always in my head. So then I go to inst. And there is this life-changing moment for me where, um, from the moment I walk in there, and funny enough, it didn't happen in Queens. When I went to Queens then later on, it didn't have the impact on me. But when I go to Inns, there's this world of opportunity where that school kind of just instills in you, what do you want to do? This is a pretty special place to be. Um, And all these rich kids were around me. Some of them are my very, very closest friends. and I saw, I saw the money they had, I saw the wealth that they had. Um, I very quickly compared that to the money we didn't have in our family. Um, and if I'm being honest, I wanted it. I wanted it for security. I wanted it for the opportunity that I, I saw that, you know, whatever their families wanted to do, they could do it. And meanwhile, you know... Uh, by that stage I was I was working at a petrol station Friday sorry Sunday night and I was lenting my dad money at the end of the week because he didn't have any money um, and its just opened up just it just instilled in me um, you're in a special place now and if you want to make it you can well, about 16 17 years of age uh, I listened to Jerry Anderson uh, on the radio and like I just certain people of, I become very very attached to and I just thought that Jerry was a genius and then it, it was partly to do with Jerry but also there was just something switched in me and I said okay, I really really want to do journalism and I want to ask questions and I want to you know do all of that kind of stuff
0: So what 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 is it about radio that you wanted to do? I mean'm'm I'm, I'm still I'm still not clear about that.
1: I love talking to people and bantering with people. Um, if I, if I'm to answer that question I honestly and not make it up, right? I don't know why, but I know it was in my head, and there was nothing else. As soon as I left the teacher thing, I was about fifteen. It's the only thing I wanted to do, and the barriers were huge. So you know, there was something inside me. I don't know is the answer but there was something inside me where I was not letting it go. You know, and some of the the things that... Some of those brick walls that were up against me, like, I remember... um, I remember quite a senior figure uh, in in the media at this time um, me getting up and saying, hello, mister, just to try to say, please, can I go in and work for free in there? And just turning his back at me and walking away. And me shouting his name, Mister, 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 and he just kept on walking. Like I was devastated. I was. I'm just. I was constantly devastated by the rejection, to the point where it made me ill. I got very down. Um, I felt I was worth nothing. I was constantly crying. There was this innate uh, desire that this is what I wanted to do, and therefore, and like you know. Failure is a big word in my life, but I felt like a complete failure that this is... When you've asked me why I want to do it, I don't know, but I know how it felt when I couldn't do it. Uh, and it never entered my entered my mind to do anything else. Here we are, we're sitting in floor five, BBC
0: Northern Ireland. The head of BBC Northern Ireland normally sits through that glass door. You're still in your 40s. You must feel like... You've made it now. You are the most influential broadcaster in Northern Ireland, the most influential journalist
1: in Northern Ireland. Don't think that at all. Why not? Um, I find it very difficult to accept that I'm successful. Um, uh, So... Failure for me is not having a family. Failure for me is not having kids. Um, and so when people talk to me about success, it depends what you're talking about. You're talking about professionally, you're talking about personally.
0: Well, you've poured yourself into your work. I mean, you work mammoth hours. It's one of the reasons why you earn so much money because you're working multiple jobs. You've got a production company. You fly at the weekends to Manchester to do Five Live, all of that stuff. So you have obsessively followed work to an extent that most people do not do so it's clearly something that you wanted to do you're an intelligent person you chose to do this so in
1: that field you're clearly hugely successful um momentarily because the the so i am incredibly proud of the nolan show and what it achieves okay like it achieves an awful lot but it is, it is so far, um, it is so big, and it is a typically so big an audience that that does not make me feel safe. That makes me feel unsafe, because hardly I keep it there. All right. So that's 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 what I need to try to come to terms with, so that I can relax. So the 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 audience in the mornings at nine a.m like it is a huge audience and it should not be there because graphs, typically radiographs throughout the UK have a particular trend and the trend of where the Nolan shows, the Nolan show is the peak audience of anywhere in Northern Ireland by a vast, vast amount, okay? And my obsession is how do I keep it there? And uh, do I enjoy it being there? momentarily every day yes we all have ego and I get a wee bit of a kick out of this is the biggest radio product that there is in Northern Ireland but the majority of my thinking is how do I stop that falling down to where it should be and I'm 20 years into it
0: and yet the biggest broadcasters the most successful people in any field at some point go into reverse and the success they've had ends absolutely
1: forever so totally have you thought about that (sighs) Oh, yes. And big time. Because I see quite a few broadcasters um, that when it comes to an end for them or the decline starts, uh, they uh, they don't handle it right for themselves and, and, they, and they start, you know, fighting against the world or hating the world. And so that's not what I want to do. So I'm absolutely thinking about that more recently in that what should the future... Well, first of all, you know, I don't want this thing to end. I don't want to keep on fighting for it to, to stay up there. But I do think, I do think that there are so many people shooting at me that one of them's going to hit the target somewhere along the line. And the Nolan Show irritates enough people in Northern Ireland that, like, you know, that somewhere, some, someone, somewhere, um, either the programme's going to tire, uh, hopefully not anytime soon, but this is what happens in the media. Products come to an end. But I, I hope it's not soon.
0: So you're you're under huge scrutiny, and as you say, you've lots of enemies, lots of very powerful enemies. But the other aspect of it that you've referred to there is that the programme could just tire. There's a huge amount of energy involved in that programme. Yeah. I've just sat through an yeah. hour and a half of it. I've seen it from both sides of the glass there. I mean, you're heading on for 50 now. Um, I mean... How long can you keep that
1: going for? Can you do that into your 60s? I certainly couldn't do that radio show and a live television show and Five Live and a TV production company into my 60s. Um, I definitely couldn't. Um, Radio is my big love. So radio will come before television when I need to make that decision. And there are these enormous pressures on the BBC.
0: They're coming later to the BBC than to other media organisations, but they're catching up with the BBC. Huge pressure on the licence fee. Will it even be there in 10 years' time? Um, If it is, what rate will it be at? All of that stuff more competition um, online digitally newspapers are doing podcasts which are basically radio we're doing video which is basically tv and um, people who once only worked in tv are writing for websites which is newspaper all of this stuff is converging online and it's going to be about survival of the fittest and all, all of all of those things isn't your position and particularly your um, massive salary the expense that you cost to BBC Northern Ireland, going to come under increasing scrutiny as jobs go. And we've just sat through a programme where you've been discussing that very topic and the callers come in and say, well, hang on a minute, what about you?
1: Well, I, I, I would point out to you that as soon as that somebody was calling on saying, what about me? I was saying to the team, get them on. And we were running out of time because there should be scrutiny of my salary. Um, I, I would argue quite strongly that... If You know, the future of the BBC, part of it's going to be about um, how many people actually want to listen to it, how many people genuinely want it. Uh, because if you're paying the licence fee, then I want to be one of those players that people are saying, well, I, I listen to him every day. So I, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with the, the situation where I'm bringing in the big numbers to BBC Northern Ireland. Uh, And I think that gives me, um, that at least gives me an argument as to why I should be paid very, very well. But of course my salary should be scrutinised. If I was somebody else, I'd be scrutinising it every every day, no problem. And the last last figures from the BBC
0: showed that you're being paid more than Hugh Edwards. Mm -hmm. Lots of people will say that's just preposterous.
1: So the salaries that I get, Sam, so I'm paid an individual salary for BBC Radio Ulster, um, if we look at the Radio Ulster show, if you don't mind, so um, the top five shows from BBC Sounds in Northern Ireland, so that's where the, the part of the future priority wants to be for BBC Northern Ireland, the top five read as follows. The Nolan Show, the Nolan Show, the Nolan Show, the Nolan Show, the Nolan Show. Um, 18 to 25-year-olds in Northern Ireland, okay? The number one show for 18 to 25-year-olds is not Greg James from Radio 1. Is not some station. It is the Nolan show. Nolan Live, I've shown you some of the television shares. You know, when we opt out, we're sometimes trebling what the audience would be if it, if it wasn't there, if it was a network show. Um, uh, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say to you is I'm pumping in big performances. I'm working really hard to do it. Well, here's this wee fella from the Martin Road who the BBC constantly rejected. Um, and actually, with all of that rejection, with all of that brick walls, with, you know, one of the managers who's no longer here telling me I was too fat for television and all of that, well, that kid from the Martin Road is in the top ten list of earners for the UK. What do we want it all to be? Do we want it all to be the London elite? And I can promise you this is the truth. When I'm out in the streets, I will constantly get the yin and the yang of whether people loved the show that day or hated the show that day. Right? I'll constantly get that. I'll constantly, I'll, I'll, I'll constantly get kind of, you know, I grew about my weight, or I grew about something I've said. The vast majority of people um, do not have a go at me about my salary here, because I think there is some. I, I, I actually would expect more flack, and I genuinely don't get it. There's something about local guy Don good, um, and I promise I'm not making that up. And by the way, if I could earn more, I would. In
0: 2006, Henry MacDonald in The Observer described you as blatantly ambitious.
1: Yeah. He wasn't wrong, was he? Oh, he was dead right. I'm incredibly ambitious, I'm I'm incredibly... What's your ambition now? To be content. Um, that's the truth Uh, when I was brought in to BBC Northern Ireland the newsroom was not told that I'd be doing the news and I was put into a department outside of the newsroom now I didn't understand the BBC politics at the time but let me tell you if there's this, this young guy coming in to BBC Northern Ireland doing the news every day outside of the newsroom that's going to ruffle a few feathers. It ruffled a lot of feathers. Okay. The only way I could survive, and I mean survive as a career, was to be the, the to be number one. I could. There, there, there was that much pressure on me to not do the news. That the only way I could I could survive it was to be the biggest news thing in here. If that makes sense. But it was, it was, it was, it was horrendous. It's just, there's a book, there's a book in it of what it was like in here being this, being this kind of young fella. This place asked me to come in here and be myself. And me being myself meant I was bringing a different tone to doing the news. And then what happened after year one is, well, the figures doubled after one year and I remember Anna character who was the controller at the time, ringing me up and she was all excited about the figures doubling within a year. But, but, you know, <laughs> that then meant that the way I was doing it, there's no way I was going at that. just reinforced my view that what I was doing was right. But to do that in an organisation like this is not easy because there's, there's always a momentum to, to um, have a particular tone. And the success of The Nolan Show is that I did not at the beginning give in. I did not have a tone, and I fought to do the news. Like, there was there was a proposal, so as you know. So I'd won all these Sonys in community radio. When I first came in here, um, within that first year, um, they tried to create a rule where I couldn't do any news story um, that was less than a week old. So that's what they tried to do. Then they wanted me to have a live band in the studio and do just one five-minute news story a day. And, like, I was street fighting to survive. Completely different now. But, like, it was horrendous. Who's your main competitor in here, William Crowley? No. Um... just to, to, to answer your question about William Crawley William Crawley is such a different broadcaster and wants to do such different things like I think William he wrote an article for the Belfast Telegraph recently and I, th- I think he was saying that you know they, they don't take that many calls on air like you've seen up there I, you know, I'm constantly the way I interact with the team is pretty unusual I'm, I want as many good calls as we can get on there uh, as, as possible. So William wants to go for something different. And I think that's the strength of both programmes. Like, there's nobody listens to me and Crawley and thinks that we're similar broadcasters. Are you friends? No. Um, What's your relationship with? Like? Uh. Mm, William would be one of those presenters who, if I saw him in the corridor, I would say hello, but I, um, I, 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 I do not have a friendship with William outside of work, as I don't with some other uh, presenters in here. Um, but, but, but no, we're not. But, you know, I'm... I'm old enough now. See, the pressure I put on myself is about me and the performance of the programme. I'm, I'm not looking over my shoulder at, at other shows. Um, and particularly given the fact that Talkback, it goes down the route where it wants a, a kind of... Um, it wants a different tone and type of conversation than I do. And so there's, there's very little competition. There's competition with every programme and every newspaper about stories. <laughs> you know, you know that.
0: One of the big criticisms of you from the outset, and it's as true today as it was when you came into this building for the first time, I think, is that you are about getting ratings. So it's about getting listeners, and that's a big part of broadcasting. But obviously, if that goes too far, you're just churning out whatever people want, whether it's in the public interest or not. Have you ever gone too far there, do you think, in your own
1: estimation when you reflect on your career? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Categorically, yes. So... Um you know, I'm a, I'm a different presenter now than I than I was ten years ago, twenty years ago. So, but I'm still chasing the ratings. Um, so, I would have thought in the early days of my career, um, there were some stories that um, I just knew it was a quick hit, and I knew it was good for ratings, and that was it. We we now, first of all, everybody kind of mellows or matures with age and I have but but also there's sometimes these cheap shots that come come in at the Nolan Show um, like the, the politicians sometimes and I know which ones I'm talking about they think it winds me up when they try to portray the Nolan Show as it's an entertainment show, it's just entertainment the impact that this programme has is immense on real people's lives on ordinary people's lives um, and that's the thing I'm not just proud of, but that's the thing that makes me feel under immense pressure, like huge pressure. And again, I come back to that pressure thing, I just kind of feel like um, I'm only going to get one shot. If I can't, if I don't have, I want to say this properly, if I have problems with my own self-esteem, then what counteracts that and, and helps me is the fact that that machine out there is actually you know impacting and it's genuine and it's authentic and so when they call the Nolan show an entertainment show it used to annoy me about 10 20 years ago now I I just kind of smirk at it now because because I know that we're anything but it's one of the most powerful things in this country and it's you know, and with that is a huge responsibility if I showed you the overnights we, we, we make this list of overnights and it's of people contacting us asking for help it is huge we're inundated and like that, that in itself is scary and again that's the truth so yes I'm a pretty good businessman and I want to earn a lot of money um, but I've only got one chance at that special machine that's out there
0: if I was doing what you do very well, distilling down a long answer and saying, here's what that really means. Am I right that what you're just saying there is that the success that you have professionally and particularly the radio show is making up for other aspects of your life where you don't think you're so
1: successful personally.
0: Is that, is that, is that what you meant when you said that?
1: Then? Yes, Okay. absolutely. And I'm trying, as I as I get older, I'm now trying to put that right. Um, so, um, I talked to you about the, uh, some of the pressures on me in the past making me sick. So I, I got to a stage, I got to a stage many, many years ago, probably over 10 years ago, um, where I got very sick, where my brain wouldn't function Okay, and the reason was, um, yeah, you know, I was work. I was in here all day. Uh, then at night time, I was either working on stories or um, obsessing about something that I needed to create or whatever it was. And then on a Friday or Saturday, Sunday night, two o'clock Friday, I'd be in the airport, flying over to, to Manchester, fly B flight invariably delayed, stuck there, just about making the show. Saturday, Sunday, uh, 5 live to 1am in the morning, up in Manchester, BBC Radio Ulster, getting up at 7, then flight home to come back into the office Monday, and I didn't take any holidays. I got to the stage, I'm happy to say this now, I got to the stage where I couldn't process simple thoughts. So, you know, if the phone rang, that was a big thing. It was just, my mind was like, um, my mind was bombarded. Uh, And that was a big, big turning point for me um, because I was very, very, very overworked. And so now what I do to protect myself is I take 12 weeks off a year. So I still do seven days a week, but I take 12 weeks off a year and I go to Santa Monica and, and America and that's my kind of healthcare because without that, uh, I, I I don't think I'd be alive today. If I hadn't changed how I was living in the past, like uh, it was a big, big lesson. All of that drive, that ambition, that that, uh, that that feeling of not being good enough, I drove myself to 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 a point where I could barely function. You're a big personality.
0: You've got a big ego. You are very successful. I hate at people
1: telling me I have a big ego.
0: I hate it. Well, tell this. Uh, But But is it? But you are are actually very... you, You talk a lot more about yourself than most BBC presenters would do, and that's one of the things that makes you different. But you're also very private about aspects of your life. So what is it that people don't know about you that if they did know about you and
1: they saw you away
0: from a camera and away from a microphone would change their
1: perception of you? I'm this person that doesn't think I'm good enough, so I overwork to compensate it. I'm this person that refuses to have somebody put a ceiling on me and and, and so I want to fight it. I'm this person that is actually quite vulnerable uh, in many different ways. However, however, before people start going, oh, you know, get the violins out, um, I'm incredibly well paid. I've got got an incredible job. I'm in the best broadcasting organisation in the world. I'm, I'm trying to hold down a job like anybody else and as the programme gets bigger, it's harder to hold down.
0: As journalists, we don't generally like to think that we are very powerful people. We like to think that we scrutinise powerful people, but actually a lot of journalists have a lot of power and you've got more than most. What is the accountability that you have as a journalist for your influential role in society? Tell me what you mean by that. So you, you have got the power to decide what stories go out in the most significant broadcast slot in Northern Ireland. You've got the power to hammer away at them for weeks if you want to. Uh, you've got the power to decide we'll take this angle on a story or we'll take that angle. It's your fault or it's your fault. Lots of these things are big calls. Who
1: scrutinises you for that? <laughs> the BBC. Like, I'm... I'm uh... You know, I I will often be, uh, you know, asked to justify what we've done or held to account if we've got it wrong. Like that, you know, that's what happens in here. Um, I'm trusted. And the reason I'm trusted is because we don't get it wrong factually. We get threatened with legal letters a lot. They, They don't come to anything. Because we get it right. Do you think a single journalist can have too much power?
0: Not just you, but as a as a principle.
1: I think it's a loaded question because you know what do you want? Do you want the journalist to try to say, look, they've they've had too much connection with the public, so let's dial it down? Like it depends what you mean by power. Do you, do you Do 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 you recognise your power? The program. The program is incredibly powerful. But when you ask me if I have power, I just don't feel it. I think the programme's got a lot of influence and I think I've got a lot of responsibility. I don't feel it. I do not feel powerful. You looked at me there as if you don't believe me, right? Um, I think you're in a very powerful position being able to go home and use whatever salary you have to spend your money on your kids. For me, that's power. Um, And I'm powerless that way. So there's different ways to look at these things? I know you don't believe me. I do not feel powerful in life. And I do not feel successful in life. And the crutch that I have is I've got a programme and a team... That can do incredible things.
0: Well, let's 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 talk about Stonewall and also about the Bobby Storey funeral. I mean, those are those are two of the most controversial things you've been involved in. What what was the sort of pressure you came under internally, externally,
1: whatever? What I can tell you is with that Stonewall story, right? Um, all I got in here was support. The Bobby story thing is, you know, needs analysed. So here's, you look at rightly or wrongly, Boris Johnson couldn't go anywhere without being challenged about some parties he'd had behind four walls. Matt Hancock in the jungle was just more recently there, was still being kind of pilloried by the people inside. Or at least ask questions, and all I did, in my view, was I didn't I didn't wither to the to the suggestion that when you know people running our country took to the streets in contravention of their own guidance for a former member of the IRA that that was a twenty-minute story, and I did not wither, uh, and. The reaction from that, so when you have a political machine like Sinn Féin uh, trying to punish you for doing that story, and that's what they're doing, okay? So they're boycotting us. As the DUP boycotted us for three years over RHI, that's where the street fighter comes out in me, and that's where I say absolutely the Nolan Show um, would do it again and again and again, Um And to come back to that Sinn Féin thing, like that will never, no matter what political party, you talk about power, okay, here's the answer. The Nolan Show is powerful enough that no matter what political party tries to boycott us, that programme will prevail because of the might of it. Um, So if if Sinn Féin
0: never come on your programme again,
1: you're not going to change the way you do things? Oh, absolutely hundred percent correct. However, I'd love Sinn Fein to be on tomorrow morning and they'd be very welcome on tomorrow morning and it would be over. But the but when when I remember um, when I remember the meetings in corridors, when I remember the chats, the conversations, the information during RHI, uh, which Sinn Fein were having with us.
0: And the DUP did this for years. What's your, then they stopped doing it. I think then they started it briefly again and That's then they right. stopped it again. I mean, what what's your relationship like with them
1: these days? It is like it is with, with all of them, Sam, in that what you have to do every day if you're in a program like ours is is get up and say good morning to them no matter what they've done the day before. And that is, that's the absolute truth. There are people in the DUP um, uh, who uh, you know, I've been having conversations, work with for years, like there is in every other party. And some of them huff and some of them don't. And it is that thing of every day you get up, what well, you can't let them ever do. You can't let them ever think that uh, they'll be able to influence what you do because then you're finished. Is it... The case that you're still
0: suing a Sinn Féin activist in Dublin Absolutely. allegations yeah. or comments that they made online.
1: Absolutely. And are there other people? Yes. So, um, here's my thinking around that. Uh, who I am as a as a as a person in this society, uh, people have a different perception of that. They see this radio character, okay? Well, actually, this radio character um, has a family and and wants to feel safe as much as anybody else does. So it got to the stage over the main troll in Northern Ireland, it got to the stage where everybody thought there was a free-for-all. And so I have taken a decision, and I've made it, and I've taken it, and it is that if, if, if people cross a line, um, it, you know, because I, I do what I do, there's there's always going to be aggro, there's always going to be people criticising me, that's fine. But if people deliberately, proactively go out to, to try to damage me, I am coming after them, and I've made that decision. Now, that will cost me money because some of those people won't have money. Um but that's what I'm going to do. So for example, there is one particular person um, who uh, uh, defamed me and then put as a hashtag, sue me too. And and they were seeing the kind of, uh, they were seeing the mob coming after me. So they decided they'd have a go too. So yes, I'm suing that person. Um, the, 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 the activist in the south uh, under no circumstances am I letting go because they were doing their very best to depict to, to me as, as some type of, you know, thug. And they just kept on going and going and going. Um, so, yeah. I, I talked to a BBC executive who said
0: that you get more abuse, far none, than anybody in BBC Northern Ireland and that it's on a par with what Laura Koonsberg was getting when she was getting... Security protection at the Labour conference. I mean, can can you convey to people what it's like, the scale of it? Do people come up to you in the street? Do they come to your house? Do they phone you?
1: What 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 goes on that people don't see? Well, um, on the street, no. On, on when I'm when I'm out and about on the street, uh, it is incredible. The, the relationship is incredible, as in that that's, that's what makes me feel good. When I'm out in the street and people are coming up and they're talking to me as if they know me in a really free way. And I love that. The stuff online is out of control. Um, the stuff online, part of it's spontaneous and part of it's coordinated. So there have been attempts to... Grind the whole complaint system down to a halt in Northern Ireland just around me in order to isolate me in here and put pressure on the BBC. Um, I I truly believe that there are political machines targeting me when we do certain stories. Um, David Thompson and I were uh, instructed by some political operatives to lay off a story and if we weren't, the machine would be turned on. Um, And so the level of abuse that I get... uh, Now, this is going to make me sound tougher than I am. I can handle it because I've got the money to handle it. But the genuinely terrifying thing is a, a young fearless journalist in Northern Ireland is incredibly vulnerable at the moment.
0: Following the logic of what you said there, do, do you think that some journalists in Northern Ireland and politicians and members of the public who look at social media don't realise that a lot of what they're seeing is manufactured for effect to benefit people in whatever area that happens to suit them at a particular time? They think that these are genuine people oh, of posting they their
1: views. Of course they do. One of, one of the if I if I could if I could clear my daily work and and could concentrate on one investigation the big untold story in Northern Ireland is what is the actual machinery behind social media uh, wh- where's the money coming from and, and and who's organizing it you know and I'm I'm a in terms of people running these fake accounts yeah it's one of the big untold stories here but it does get to you at times. You know, you forget yourself sometimes. Um, and then... And then, even if you do have the resources I have, you know, you're pretty helpless. One of the ones that... One of the ones that did get to me was, you know... Um, I'd done Nolan Live, and they took a screenshot of me on the stage with your man, Stephen Burr, where I was burr and he was burr and they said... Uh, they they And this might sound funny, but here's why it wasn't funny. So they, they took a, a screenshot, cropped it, and then said I'd been found in California with a rent boy or whatever. Um, and, like, I, I was horrible, but, you know, I didn't lose much sleep. Where I started to lose sleep was I was filming in America and some of the American crews come up to me. Are you going to be able to keep your job? And it's kind of like then it's out of control. So I had this woman in Scotland um, who would ring the programme trying to get through to me every day. That then developed into her her and her mother ringing every day trying to speak to me because apparently I was in love with the daughter. Uh, That then developed into one day... The reason I park in the backyard now, this is where that started, I used to park outside BBC Northern Ireland and get loads of parking tickets. So I drove in one day, parked a car, and there she is standing at the bottom of my car screaming that I'd got her pregnant. She'd flown all the way from Scotland. Um, and then I found out from a local hotel that she had been staying there telling her that I'd be I'd clear I'd clear her bill. And the terrifying thing about all of that was all she needed to then do, this is what was my mind. If she was claiming I'd got her pregnant and I was in love with her and all this, very unlikely by the way. Um what if she said I hit her? What if she said, you know, you're that vulnerable to those individual stalkers? This whole online thing's a completely different game. They're out to destroy you. Do you ever worry about your security? Um no, because I've pretty I've I've got my my house pretty secure and set up. You know properly, so if anybody comes to that house, there's there's more cameras around that house than there is in the BBC studio. You know, um, I don't. I just people people I are in some worry cases. about my mom. Okay, so I was in I was in town dropping off my mum with her wee friend R S. I I drop them off in town every Saturday, um, and one of the anti-vaxxers aunt, came up and started screaming in her face, and so I, I worry about that. I mean, you're you're being
0: presented in certain quarters by some Republicans, some nationalists as a bigot, as mm-hmm. sectarian. I mean, th- those are very dangerous allegations in Northern Ireland. And people have been attacked for that sort of thing in the past, if people actually believe them. And clearly some people do believe this stuff, genuinely believe it. And in some cases, as you say, because they're being given stuff that's partial or stuff is being misrepresented. I mean... How, how serious is that or is it, is it something that can just be dealt with legally and social media companies and BBC executives, etc.? No, I, I,
1: I don't think the BBC can do very much. The way that I counteract the false claims of bigotry is through the journalism. And the bottom line is, you know, as soon as there is a story about anything in the unionist community... We'll be all over it. If a story merits us doing, you know, the DUP complained that we did, I don't know what they say, X amount of days on RHI. It does not come into our head what community it's from. It comes into our head, is it a story? And I am sorry, RHI was a story, and Bobby Story's funeral was a story. Full stop. And if the, You know, if it means I get described as a bigot, because I'm questioning why the gates to Roselawn were locked and people were standing outside it, why there was special access, uh, then, you know, yeah, I'm paid, I'm paid enough to carry that on my shoulders. I'm paid enough um, that when, you know, Belfast City Council were on the phone briefing me that it was just an individual within Roselawn that, that, that happened to give all of this access. You know, that doesn't mean I'm a bigot because I'm pursuing that. It's quite vacuous.
0: Few more quick questions. How many calls do you get on a big day in the
1: studio? Roughly. So it varies. Um on a big day, there only the there only are a certain amount of lines come in, but okay, the answer to that is we would get four to five hundred calls on a big day um between between nine and ten o'clock in the morning. Now, some mornings it's nowhere close to that. It depends on the story. Just like newspapers whatever Whatever whatever, whatever the story happens. Some stories, the other thing is, some stories, and this is again where I've changed from the early years. So the early years I was going for the calls, okay? I absolutely want to get voices on air now, as many as I can, but sometimes we do stories that are not going to be reactive, but they're very, very important. So I, I do want to say this. One of the big... Um, one of the big things that I've done right, because I'm as much a producer as I am a presenter. So one of the big things I've done right is to very, very much push back against the media deciding who is intelligent, because define it, right? And at the heart of the core of the Nolan Show um, is this principle that we have that... If it's not illegal, and if it's not breaching the, the BBC's guidelines, right, we're probably going to put those people on air. And then you get these stupid people that say, oh, you know, your type of audience, who the hell do they think they are? And that's the secret sauce of The Nolan Show. I picked up on two things this morning that
0: I think maybe speak to how you've changed over the years, but tell me, tell me if I've got this wrong. There was a caller about refugees and there was a caller attacking politicians. And in both those cases, the populist thing to do would be to string it along a bit, maybe get other callers in supporting them. And you challenged them pretty robustly. And you said, no, politicians are not all wasters or whatever it was you said. And you explained why refugees come here and the sort of situations that they're fleeing. Have you, I mean, you've you've changed over the years. You've said that, you've mellowed, everybody changes as they get older, as they become more experienced, more, Confident, comfortable in their organisations, whatever. Is that something that you've done consciously, or is it as you understand more of the world, you realise actually some of this stuff I thought was simple is a heck of a lot more complicated now that I understand a
1: bit of how it works. Both. So I wouldn't be the most knowledgeable person in the world. Um, so I'm very much, you know, I'm I'm you know with experience, I'm gaining knowledge, um, and I'm also growing up. However, however, do I think sometimes people get up and look at, you know, six different coloured bins? Or do I think that people get up and, you know, don't actually want to wash their jam jars out and it gives them some type of thrill? And do I think I want to be the type of presenter that just talks in a real way with that? Yes. So I'd probably frame it slightly differently now. But, you know, do, do I get up singing Save the Planet while washing out a jam jar in the morning? No, I do not.
0: And yet, you live in a part of Northern Ireland where there's a beautiful environment, and presumably you want to protect that. You don't want people littering. See,
1: they're coming with age. Is 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 that understanding, which is why I would say it differently now. So, absolutely, like I do find myself now, and it's kind of scary. But I didn't care about trees, you know, years ago, whereas I do now. I'm just wondering what the next phase of my life is gonna is gonna be. You know.
0: In the next episode. A week later, after thinking about what Nolan had said and what he hadn't said, I returned to Broadcasting House to ask more questions. He told me how much money he has, his enduring regret about his late father, the realities of fame, and why he refuses to entertain calls for him to bar the loyalist Jamie Bryson from his programme.
1: Jimmy Bryson is not regularly on The Nolan Show. He's on it more regularly than any other programme. Oh, he's absolutely. I you know, have a very, very strong view on us being very, very careful before the crowd decides who's acceptable and who is not.
0: This episode was produced by myself, Sam McBride, and Kieran Dunbar. Sound design was by Graham Davidson. To read the print version of my two-part interview with Stephen Nolan, visit belfasttelegraph.co.uk.